With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and the Dispatch.com and Dispatch Media and Dispatch Fricassee and Dispatch Amandine and Dispatch Loaf. I feel like Yosemite's Sam making coconut meals. Um, uh, it is very early. Um, I am barely caffeinated. I am in Moab, Utah, and uh, we are heading to Denver shortly. And from Denver, we are going home. Um, it's a little complicated about how that part will happen. I'll talk about that later. Um, it's been, um, for the most part, a great trip. We often do this to ourselves where we bite off more than we can chew in terms of driving. But it, one of the reasons why we keep doing it is there's this weird thing. And if, you were a, if you're someone who likes going on road trips, um, you know what I'm talking about. The long periods of grinding um on open roads the tedium you forget almost instantaneously and you just remember the moments and um and that makes you more inclined to want to do it again if you're that kind of person there's some people who just really hate long drive stuff um you know and maybe if we had more than one kid and they were constantly fighting in the back and saying stop touching me stop touching me we would have a different view about these things but um uh, we generally, genuinely like this stuff. And so if you've never done it, I've been on some amazing drives, um, in my life, you know, we drove from Fairbanks, Alaska to DC once we, um, have driven cross country at least, I don't know, maybe two dozen times, at least more than a dozen. Um, and, uh, but this drive that we took from, uh, from where were we? Gosh, from Yosemite. I'm sorry, no, not from Yosemite to St. Well, the drive from Yosemite to St. George was amazing too, but from St. George to Moab was incredible. And we did it as a, um, we took the scenic route. So we went through Zion and then, uh, we added time to the trip by going through Escalus town called Escalante and then from Escalante down to um Moab and if you've and that that basically took us through mountains it took us through two or three different kinds of deserts with different kinds of funky rock formations and um and there are times when you really felt you were on another planet and uh we went through a snowstorm at the top of a mountain um and I think it's Dixie National Park where you know, it hit 22 degrees and, and it was snowing sideways. And then you're 
you know, an hour later, you're in a desert. Um, we drove through a lot of open range with cattle. Um, I'm kind of romantic about the open range cattle stuff, but at the same time, it bothers me because when um, you go into these national parks in the, you know, in the high desert, they're always telling you stay on the paths, don't walk on the incredibly sensitive cryptobiological soil and blah, 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 blah. And then you realize that there are, you know, thousand pound cows all over the desert walking all over that stuff. Um, that kind of bothers me. But anyway, um, uh, it was really just the spectacular drift. And so then there was this thing, um, and don't worry, I'm not going to do all travelogue, but it was really kind of fascinating and I want to learn more about it. Um, on the drive from Yosemite, which was great, um, you go through, we, so we went through the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, I think it was in El Dorado National Park and, or maybe that was the name of the mountain. Again, I'm fuzzy with this stuff at this point. Um, you know, we left from Nevada into California on a route that I've never done before. I've driven from Northern California to Southern California a couple times. Um, taking various routes, but I've never really seen this route. And I, I guess I've never been in Calaveras County and I'm sure Californians know more about this than I do, or at least many do. Um, it's, it's fascinating, um, to me just as a sort of sociological thing insofar as look, I mean, there are lots of places in the country where the scenery is just staggeringly beautiful. Um, but the houses aren't. Uh, you know, that the, there are places in this country where working class uh, people can live in beautiful places. And um, I think all in all, that's a good thing. But it's, sometimes it's surprising when you find it in places that are very close to where rich people live or where you would expect rich people to live. And Calaveras County um, is basically, it's, it's, it's almost the Shire. It is so pretty. Um, with rolling hills and very, very, very happy dairy cows grazing on very green grass. And, um, but it looks like parts of Alaska in terms of how people have all their crap in their front yards, the rusting cars and the, um, the old weird equipment that is, you know, returning to nature. Um, the, the, the VW vans up on blocks and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and the oil drums, I mean, all sorts of stuff, just, you know, just littered across their property, which, um, I'll admit I, I'm snobbish about, it. I don't like the look of that. And maybe I inherited it from my wife who really doesn't like it. And it's all over the place in Alaska, but it was just really particularly incongruous because in Congress, in Congress, um, in California, because it's California and you just, you know, this is this part of the country, this part of California by my lights is prettier than wine country. Um, uh, it's prettier than a lot of the um, parts of Southern California, uh, just in terms of the, the aesthetics of the landscape are just amazing. And yet the aesthetics of the human impact were, were often pretty ugly and i just think that's that's really interesting and the fact that it hasn't been gentrified you know in the in the sort of rural equivalent of gentrification um is was also kind of shocking to me i mean if if you know the shock troops of gentrification 
in Vermont were the, you know, the, the gay yuppie couples and, and, and straight yuppie couples who went in and bought old barns and converted them, um, uh, into, you know, architectural digest, you know, uh, centerfolds. Um, it is fascinating to me that the same thing hasn't happened with folks from San Francisco or even Sacramento, which is pretty close. Um, but anyway, it was really, it was really, really pretty and really interesting. Um, and there's also a, inspired by a Mark Twain, uh, short story. Uh, there is a, a annual championship frog jumping competition, um, in Calaveras County, which I think is cool too. And my daughter really wants to go back to see. Um, yesterday we did a big hike in <clears throat> Arches National Park, which was really fantastic. Uh, kind of beat me up. Uh, uh, one of the things that this trip has reinforced for me is how I got to get back in shape and two, um, how in my middle age altitude affects me so much worse than it used to. Um, and other than that, that's just sort of what's been going on. Um, and so let's talk about stuff. So the first podcast I did this week, uh, with my old friend, Tevi Troy was on sort of, uh, free speech and cancel culture and what to do about it. And then because David French graciously agreed to um, sub for me on the second podcast, he did an episode on free speech and cancel culture and what to do about it. And I've listened to the first part this morning while I was trying to get coffee um, in the dark of David's uh, conversation. It sounds great so far. I haven't gotten to his stuff on the Snyder cut yet, which um, I'm very worried about. But, um, uh, but I'm sure, I'm sure the whole thing is great. Uh, you know, David really knows that stuff and, and Greg, you look, Greg Lukyanov, um, uh, is, uh, his equal in mastery over the subject and all that. But, you know, it got me thinking the both episodes together got me thinking of, of something, you know, and it's a point I've, I think I've made here a bunch of times. I know I wrote about an article about it in NR and I've probably done a few G files about it as well. You know, one of the things that defines um, various forms of ideological thinkers, I mean, I'm trying to think of a way to make this work for both left and right, um, is where they, well, well, let me put it this way. The biggest distinction between left and right in the sort of traditional sense, and there are exceptions to these rules, but as as a rule of thumb, is that conservatives tend to find their ideal societies in the past and liberals tend to find them or the left tends to find them in the future. And uh, this in and of itself creates a, an important distinction um, or actually a number of important distinctions as I think this through and another and a number of um, important dangers, significant dangers. For conservatives who find their ideals in the past, the biggest and most obvious danger is nostalgia. Uh, because, you know, I think it's Robert Nisbet who said nostalgia is the rust of memory. And we tend to think things were better in the past than they really were. This is a human thing, not just a conservative thing, but um, it's worse for conservatives because they actually embrace nostalgia in ways that, that the left doesn't. And... Um, and so you can, um, you can gloss over all sorts of faults with the past 
that um, you that even conservatives today would not tolerate in our own society. Um, you can talk all you want about the 1950s and how great it was. Um, I know very few conservatives who talk that way about the 1950s who would actually be at all tolerant of the way women were seen, the way African Americans were seen. Um, the you know, or forget you know, sort of civil rights and that kind of and that kind of stuff. Just the the range of options in the marketplace for food um, and cars and the amount of you know uh, tolerance we had for things like drunk driving and know, domestic abuse. You can go down a huge long list of things that most of the conservatives you know and I know, and including you know probably you and me when we talk about the past, we tend to leave that stuff out. And, um, and that's a danger because it can corrupt your analysis of the present. You know, there's a lot of really wonderful things about the present that you would not want to give up on. And, um, this is one of the, you know, I'll get back to this in a second, but this is one of my big complaints in, you know, in 25 years of talking to serious right wingers of all different shapes and sizes. One thing that you will often hear is how. Um, you can't escape the progressive liberal culture anymore and how it was better in the past. And, um, and, you know, I mean, there was a, I remember, uh, what was it? Wendy Shalit wrote a piece for, um, wrote a book and, um, uh, and was a big champion of like returning to Victorianism. And, you know, my big problem with that kind of stuff, and I wrote a review about it for reason a long time ago, is that you can't go back, you know, that, that the technological changes have made it impossible to go back and do a lot of the things that seem natural and normal in the past because customs emerge, customs and traditions and institutions are tools and they are ways in which society deals with problems. And when technology cuts the Gordian knot of those problems, um, returning to some of those old traditions and customs becomes a form of kitsch or, uh, or reenactment, um, you know, or role playing, uh, you know, like I remember her talking about, um, you know, how it used to be wonderful that male suitors who wanted to talk to girls would leave their calling card when they visited the house and then they would make an appointment to return another time. Well, first of all, that was a very elite custom, I'm pretty sure. But second of all, um, that sort of custom evolves in a society that doesn't have telephones. Um, and anyway, I bring that up because there are these other people you meet that will tell you, um, that they would retreat from the world, but there's no way they could make money, um, the way they need to support their families and all this. And I remember having this argument with a very serious, important, um, uh, as it, as it happened, um, committed Orthodox Jew. Um, who was also big in conservative circles, I don't know, 15 years ago. And uh, and he was telling me how, you know, the culture is so, and I've heard versions of this argument from a, bo- a lot of people, the culture is so omnipresent, it invades our lives, you can't escape it, and that's why, and that justifies this approach to politics or that approach to politics and yada, yada, yada. And the fact is, is that you don't need to make large amounts of money if you actually want to retreat from society. I driven across big chunks of this country 
And if you really believed all that kind of stuff, you could retreat to someplace and not have a TV and not be exposed to that kind of culture. I'm in fact, I think a couple miles from where they film the Netflix documentary series, uh, which I have not watched, uh, Sister Wives. Um, they've retreated from the culture in significant ways. Um, and these things are, these things are possible. It's just that a lot of people don't actually believe that they want to retreat from this stuff. Um, uh, they, I mean, are, a lot of people say that they, that, that they hate the, the culture and all of these kinds of things and wish they could escape. And in fact, they just don't want to pay the price of escaping because to escape the, the dominant culture completely means also escaping all of the good stuff that we just sort of uh, take for granted. And I really don't know if I am incoherent at this point. So, okay, so back to the past, right? On the other hand, one of the nice things about looking at the past for ideal societies or, or, or not ideal as in perfect, but ideal as in role model societies is that at least the societies in the past existed, right? There were actual real places with flesh and blood humans in them. And, uh, that is a, that is a demonstration effect as some economists might talk it, right? Talk about it. It is, um, it is real. And, um, and that gives conservatives uh, understanding of past societies or, or, or proper ways to organize society an advantage over the worst kinds of the left doing it. Because in, con in the conservative version, they're real. They exist. The, the, the radical left version is the utopia, right, uh, which comes from Thomas More. It's a neologism that combines, I think it's Greek and Latin, to mean... Uh, no place like it doesn't actually exist and the problem with utopian societies and utopianism generally is that um because it is this made-up fantasy world that exists some someplace in the future um you it's non-falsifiable right i mean you know you can look back on how um pittsburgh behaved in the 1950s and you can prove to one extent or another how Pittsburgh people in Pittsburgh lived in the 1950s. It's very difficult to look towards some Marxist progressive, uh, you know, city in the clouds of 2250 and say it doesn't work um, because it doesn't exist. And um, this is deeply related to why you know the old you know the old cliche from liberals about socialism has never been tried, you know, socialism never been tried or communism's never been tried. And, uh, it's because the, the utopian ideal has to remain perfect. So even though people have tried many, many, many times, uh, to create perfect socialist societies because they exist in the real world, they're always flawed. And by definition, the perfect utopian society is not flawed so it has to be proof that it wasn't really tried um and this way the the sort of the carrot dangling in front of the progressive donkey's nose is always just an inch ahead of it and um it can always drive it forward and, th and this again gets to this distinction i've talked about a lot that i first got from you all about the differences between 
the way conservatives and the way progressives talk about political society. And conservatives tend to talk about space, giving people space to be happy, to pursue their own lives and all that kind of stuff. And the progressives tend to talk about direction and uh, how we all have to move together to get to someplace in the future. And um, these are um, important differences in political philosophy. I also think that they are written in the human heart, right? This is my spiel about how we're all a little Rousseauian and we're all a little Lockean. Um, we all want to be part of something and a cause larger than ourselves. We all want to be on a team. We all want to be in a tribe. Um, but we also all want to be recognized as unique individuals who make a significant, unique contribution by ourselves. And um, these things are intention within the human heart. And these things are intention within all of society. And they are the one of the driving tensions between at least my kind of conservatism and sort of uh, sort of radical progressivism, Marxism, left. I need to figure out a term that is satisfactory for the kind of left that I'm talking about, but I think people understand where I'm coming from. So um, that all said, I, I, I swear I'm getting back to this campus stuff. I've made this argument for a while that um, you can judge... Um, Again, you judge people, you can judge um, intellectuals or ideologues by their definitions or their understandings of what an ideal society is. And, uh, and I think that for a long time, on the, particularly on the left, the idea of um, what kind of society was represented in the microcosm of universities was... Uh, the best sort of window into this sort of thinking. And in fact, I think starting in about the 1990s, the progressive project in many respects has been to make America like a vast college campus. And, you know, on a college campus, the worst thing you can do is hurt somebody's feelings um, on a college campus, an elite college campus. Um, the most important things aren't like, um, working with your hands or, uh, making money on a college campus. It is all of this sort of, uh, uh, obsession with concepts, ideas, words, images, um, the, the physical me, you know, the, the, in many ways, the economy of a college campus, um, of, a, of an elite college campus has been dematerialized. You know, this gets to this thing. I often went back when I used to get invited to do college speeches, I would make this point all the time about how, you know, um, one of the weirdest things on, on elite campuses is how these kids think they're independent. And look, in, in a sense, it's totally forgivable because they are the most independent they've ever been in their lives. If you're, in, in, you know, from an affluent family um, in an affluent community, and particularly if you've been sort of helicoptered by your parents for a long time, and then you go off to college by yourself, you have to set your own schedule. You have to get yourself up. You have to do it. You know, you, you have to make sure you get fed and clothed and do laundry and all these kinds of things that makes you feel really independent. The problem is, is that it is utopian independence. It is a fictional independence. It's the, it's a, it's a mirage of independence because at the same time, 
your someone else is doing your cooking for the most part. Um, someone else, other than maybe your dorm room itself, someone else is doing all of the relevant cleaning, including of like the bathrooms, unless you like live off campus. Again, please don't come at me with your, the exceptions of why this doesn't apply to you. I'm speaking in broad generalizations, and I think people can understand that. Um, uh, security is provided by somebody else. Room and board, again, if you're from an affluent family and you're going to an elite school, you know, your rent is paid for, the heat is paid for, the utilities are paid for. Um, you go down a very long list and everything is taken care of for you. And then you think you're independent because you've figured out, you know, your course schedule so that you don't have class on Fridays. And you think that makes you a genius. And, um, and I think that there are a lot of people, uh, who come out of the sort of, I don't know, the Brown university mindset. Uh, maybe I'm being unfair to Brown, but it's how I always seen it. Um, they come out of that and they all of a sudden when they hit the real, real world, they feel this disconnect and they think that I need to make the real world more like, you know, by my now increasingly nostalgic memory of what college was like. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see like things like speech codes get exported and all of these kinds of things. Um, this is why. All of the, you know, obsession with words and images and language, which they obsess on on college campuses, has spilled out like an overturned sewage truck um, on so much of our cultural politics these days. This is where you get a lot of the cancel culture stuff. Um, because on college campuses, if you whine enough, you win. Um, you know, you can, if enough people sign their petitions and whine about a class or whine about a professor, um, they tend to win. And this is instantiated in a lot of people's minds that what politics is, is organized whining um, and organized um, bleeding about hurt feelings. And, um, and I think that this comes into play all, in all sorts of ways. Anyway, so I bring all of this up because I think it helps you understand or it helps me understand um, where some people are coming from. And I also think, as I've been saying on here a couple, a couple times recently, I think a lot of right-wingers are now starting to export their memories of college campus as um, uh, to define their politics. That, you know, it's all about creating controversy and owning the libs and drinking liberal tears and, and all of these things. And it's one of the reasons why free speech is such a, I mean, look, there are real free speech issues in the real world and all that, but, um, and, you know, and they should be taken seriously, but the, the way a lot of people talk about free speech is really about it as a campus issue. And, um, and they may, they may, you know, adapt it to the real world, but the sort of, uh, the form of the rhetoric and the shape of the rhetoric um, is really forged by this sort of, um, you know, D'Souzian, uh, turning point USA kind of Matt Gatesian ass clownery that, um, um, I think can be traced back to the sort of campus stuff. And, and so here's where I get a little off of the reservation. I, I completely, you know, like, I mean, David's a free speech warrior. Um, 
Um, I get why the free speech fights on college campuses are so intense and so passionate and all that. And I think it's in part because, again, we have this almost, um, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, words are not coming. Um, we want to be social engineers in a lot of ways. And so we, um, you know, we tend to look to college campuses as like the clay that we can form. And it's our little sort of test cases for how we want to shape society in part because so many elites think that the larger society should behave like a college campus. Um, it should look like a college campus. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and depending on what kind of elite and what kind of ideology you have, there are elites who think that the most important people in the larger society should be essentially the faculty and um, that we should defer to the experts of the faculty. And then there are other kinds of people in society who think, no, 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 the most important people in the society should be the administrators who define everybody. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, we, we apply arguments to how campus life or college life or whatever it is um, should be. And we give that more salience than I think it should be. And this is, and so again, this is where I sort of get off the standard right um, conservative wagon when it comes to the free speech stuff. It's one thing if it's a public university, for sure. You know, there are different issues at work there and all that. But I really am not the champion of free speech on campus that um, some people are. You know, I think that. Um, including some, a lot of my friends who I respect a great deal on the right are, um, I'm in very much in favor of academic freedom, um, which I think is a different thing than just free speech for students and all of that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Greg Luganov makes this point when he was talking to David in the part that I listened to already about how, um, often what opposition to free speech boils down to is power. And that the people in power don't like to be criticized. Um, he makes this very good point, which I think is very true, which is that uh, one of the lessons he learned is basically a psychological point, is that people object to free speech or people object to certain kinds of speech on a visceral, psychological sort of lizard brain level. And then they search for a rational argument to validate their emotional response. And I think that's definitely true. Um, but so my problem with, you know, speech codes on college campuses is less to do because the fact that they impinge on the free speech rights of people who are in a school that has, you know, in loco parentis powers over students anyway, and that you don't have a right to go to, it's a privilege, um, and that, you know, the my, 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 my objection isn't that, you know, oh no, students can't say certain things so much as that it's the kind of policing by those in power that bothers me. And I will just be honest about it. If you could have a college campus that had, you know, first of all, very strict speech codes about, you know, you can't use the N word, you can't call people kikes and gooks or whatever, and that kind of thing. Um, which I think a lot of schools do have, and it does not bother me in the slightest. Um, there is nothing essential to using racial slurs um, or, you know, and certainly not threatening violence or anything like that. None of that bothers me in the slightest that that's regulated on college campuses. Um, you know, college campuses, most colleges, most good colleges I know of 
at least until fairly recently, all had honor codes. And honor is a standard that is um, less about maximizing one's individual rights and more about trying to do what is what is what is morally right. Um, so, I mean, I would have no problem with a college campus that actually had fairly robust speech regulation beyond just sort of first First Amendment principles. It does not bother me in the slightest. I don't know if this is the case, but it would not bother me in the slightest if there was a Christian university that didn't allow um, students uh, on campus property, you know, on school property or using school resources to try to proselytize for Islam or Judaism or, or atheism. It's a Christian school. You make certain commitments that you're going to abide by those tenets um, and those norms when you go there. Um, the point of the university was twofold. When you go back to the Middle Ages, a big chunk of it, you know, the academic freedom thing is a real thing and it's important. But on the educational side, part of, you know, part of the tradition there is to create good citizens. It's to create good people. And there's a certain amount of regulation that goes on in there. I mean, uh, there's certainly a lot of regulation going on in parenting. And, you know, by the time you get to college, that's you know, the tail end of that process of civilizing people. And treating kids as if they are these fully realized, um, autonomous creatures who should be able to give full voice um, to their passions and their emotions um, doesn't seem to me to be part of the civilizing process. Uh, you know, the, the liberal and liberal arts wasn't, um, doesn't, doesn't refer to like, um, the Michael Dukakai of the world. It's not a, it's not about progressivism. It is about, um, freedom and it is about the, um, it is about training people to have the knowledge and skills required to be full citizens in a free society and to handle the responsibilities of freedom responsibly. Um, in a free society. That's what the liberal and liberal arts refers to. It's a training program to create citizens in a, in a liberal democratic society. And, um, if that requires, you know, limits on free speech that go beyond strict first amendment stuff, um, again, accounting for other differences between public and private and yada, 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 but even in public universities, you know, I, I'm open to arguments. Um, I'm just not bothered by it. You know, I'm not bothered that, um, people in basic training for Marine, for the Marine Corps or the army don't have access to the full run of their constitutional rights because that's not part of the training process to become a Marine. You know, you, there are things you cannot say when in formation, <laughs> when you're a Marine, at least I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, and that doesn't feel to me like grotesque censorship. That seems to me to be sort of responsible citizenry and um and so i think that and i think that a lot of people actually agree with me and one of the reasons why the free speech on campus stuff resonates is because i think people either uh consciously or intuitively understand that it's really not about the issue of free speech it's about the kind of training that young people are getting on college campuses um, it's about it's about the kind of citizens that these these elite institutions are producing, and the way power is wielded, and um, and so we use. I mean, this is part of the problem with 
so much of our political discourse is it almost always re- redounds back to notions of free expression or uh, free speech or rights in general. And like, I'm a big believer in, in the rights enshrined in the Bill of Rights. And, and one of the great things about this country is how passionately we believe in this stuff. But not all arguments are about that stuff. And uh, we have a tendency to reduce everything down to, you know, you know, your, your disagreement with me is a violation of my free speech rights, which is hot garbage. Um, so anyway, that was a long digression. What else is going on? Oh, um, I wrote my column yesterday after I got back from Arches uh, on the, the filibuster stuff and the little snippets I heard from the Biden press conference. I did not watch the Biden press conference. Um, but my understanding is, is that it basically confirmed a lot of people's priors. And, uh, and so if you were of the belief that Biden is a doddering fool, uh, he did very little to dissuade you that he isn't. Um, uh, I, from what I've read, it does seem like he lied a lot. Um, and, uh, he took a great number of liberties and, you know, from the clips I've seen, uh, he does, you know, something I've said a million times, he's lost a step. And, uh, uh, and the, but anyway, so I wrote about the, the filibuster and not about like why it's good and all that kind of stuff. Although I'm still in favor of the filibuster. Um, I just focused on this really annoying thing, which I now see from this morning's Twitter feed. Lots of other people have focused on. Um, I just think it's just, just the height of bad faith to claim that the filibuster is racist and as 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 biden well biden agreed with a reporter when a reporter said you know barack obama says that the the filibuster is a jim crow relic and biden said he agrees with that um i think that is such nearest weapon to hand cheap bs um to say that you know the filibuster when used by Republicans in a minority is part of the great chain of racism in this country. And it is a direct descendant and in the lineage of Jim Crow and slavery and all that kind of stuff. But when Democrats use it, it's an important tool and institution in the greatest deliberative body in the world. You know, Joe Biden used and defended the filibuster relentlessly for almost 50 years. Um, not once did he ever, you know, he, he basically said it was the heart of what the Senate is all about. And it was, you know, it was vitally important. Even Barack Obama, the first African-American president, when he was a Senator and still an African-American, he supported the filibuster when it suited his political purposes. And it's, you know, it can't be like Thor's hammer. Right, that only the worthy can can use it. Um, either the filibuster is a racist thing, or it's not. It can't be racist when Republicans use it on non-race related issues, mind you, um, and and noble and glorious when Democrats use it. You've Got to pick a lane on this stuff. And I think this is you know this this again I think is in some ways reflective of my point about you know the way college campus discourse poisons American discourse. College campus, 
Well, it's in, you know, in some seminar, it is like really interesting to talk about how, you know, the filibuster is tainted with the, you know, the corrupt essences of racism through some, you know, uh, distributive property of using verbs and nouns in creative ways to say how, you know, there's a very literary argument where you can have foreshadowing and foreboding and, and we can remind the reader of these associations and these ominous parallels and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's very theatrical and literary to talk about how, uh, you know, using the filibuster to stop, I don't know, um, the appointment of an HHS secretary uh, that you don't like is really in line with Jim Crow. That works great in a fricking seminar. Um, it's kind of stupid as hell in real life. But when you have this sort of campus culture of, 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 of thinking that words are more important than things, um, it has newfound plausibility. And I think that that, um, and so it's very, you know, this, I, but anyway, so this idea that, you know, the filibuster, which, yeah, it was used by segregationists and to do bad things, but, you know, you know, other things were used by segregationists to do bad things in the Senate, you know, roll call votes were used by segregationists, um, uh, points of order were used by segregationists, urinals were used by segregationists. Um, these things do, there's no transitive property that all of a sudden makes those things racist because they were used by racists. Racists use the highways. Racists used, um, you know, uh, the electrical grid, uh, on, if you're writing a science fiction short story, you can talk about how, you know, uh, the, the spirit of racism moved through the platonic ether into um, the, 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 the souls of material things and cursed them and whatnot, that's all fine. But in real life, you know, you can, you can make an argument about why the filibuster is good or bad, but it is an attempt. It is a, it is basically just marketing. It's egghead marketing to claim that if you're in favor of the filibuster and you're a Republican, it's because you are living down to the legacy of racism. Um, and if you're a Democrat, you're just doing you're not, you know, you're just doing what is right and proper with the tools that you have in front of you. Um, and so, you know, there is just no way to look at Biden, Biden's career, Biden's long history of positions on the, uh, on the filibuster and where he is now and not see it as just simply an issue of power. Again, so much of politics isn't about these grand principles. It's about how people use power and, and then try to sell their usage of power um, as a matter of grand principle and being able to sort of disentangle those things. And that, I'm not saying that the grand principle doesn't exist. Um, I'm just saying that a lot of the time, whether it's free speech arguments or the filibuster or, or all these kinds of things, it's primarily about power. And then you try to sort of, uh, find a, a pretextual rationalization to justify what you are doing for um, the sake of power and uh, and disentangling that stuff I think is important 
What is also interest necessary for disentangling is all of this stuff about the the Snyder cut. And I I am with some dread about where David took the conversation at the end of the remnant. I will listen to it today. Um, I think, you know, I, I think the window is largely closed on this topic. Uh, I just think, you know, so a couple, but here I have not actually sounded off on this. I mean, I, I, I did mention when I was talking to Tevi that I think one of the problems with the argument about the Snyder cut is that, um, and, and also Snyder's general project with the DC stuff is to say that, um, because there's this interesting idea, you know, the Sonny Bunch idea uh, argument, which is that what if a real God came to earth and how would society respond? Um, I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, and uh, I don't think that Snyder actually has done a wonderful job in running through how that would work with the Superman movies or the Justice League movies. Um, you know, I think we would see a lot more spontaneous religious activity where people started worshiping Superman as a god. That would be a more interesting storyline to me about St- Superman having sort of like William Shatner at the Star Trek convention and that Saturday Night Live skit trying to tell all these people who are bowing to him to get a life. I think that would be a really fascinating storyline. Um, instead, we kind of had the, the Facebook guy, uh, Lex Luthor, um, and, you know, and, and, and general Zod and, and, and the comic book plots that were kind of familiar just shot through, um, um, a grayer lens than in other versions of Superman. And, um, and so while that idea is really interesting, the execution of it, I'm I'm not convinced is all that interesting. Um, and I think that there are too many sort of want, wanting to have it both ways of being very comic booky and also very realistic at the same time. And I think one of the best examples of that are the Amazonians. I mean, look, uh, the Amazonians are uh, very pleasing to the male gaze. I will just say that up front. Um, and I will always uh, pay close attention to the, the scenes um, with the Amazonians because um, they are a very attractive bunch of people. Um, that said, I kind of liked how Snyder tried to turn them into the Spartans and make them more gritty and darker and all that kind of stuff. But, and again, I, I'm not, I don't want to get in trouble with the, with the female listeners out there, but I think I'm on pretty solid ground. I talked to my daughter about this quite a bit that, um, if there was an island full of uh, statuesque, well-endowed female super warriors who um, lived without men, but apparently are not gay, um, my sense is, and again, I am open to correction from 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 listeners, but my sense is is that they might have less complicated hair. They might wear ponytails while doing archery and gymnastics and um, wrestling. Um, they might be less conscientious about shaving their legs. I mean, just call me crazy here. Um, 
you know, they, they might have some days where they just chose to wear yoga pants rather than bronze bodices. But that's, again, the, I'm not objecting to that stuff, but if you're going to go for verite um, uh, and not sort of comic book bosom worship, uh, there could have been a little adjustment there. Um, and, uh, so anyway, I, I, and so the, then there's the last problem and, and I don't want to get into a whole sort of, um, you know, uh, Husserlian, um, is that how you say people who follow Husserl, um, uh, analysis of all of this, but part of the problem with watching the Snyder cut, um, is first of all, you have to devote four hours of your time, um, to it. Um, but there's also just the, the, the problem, and this is not Snyder's fault. Uh, this is just is a problem of the medium itself. If you saw the original version, you'd know for the most part what's going to happen. Yeah, there's some new twists and turns and all that kind of stuff. But you can never read a book for the first time twice. You can never see a movie for the first time twice. Um, and, and so the... the, the the experience of watching, you know, this new cut of the movie is just going to be different. And I think it's very difficult for people to take that into account when they're offering their analysis, because it's just not, it's not possible for your brain to do that. And so therefore people are over intellectualizing this because that is the safe Harbor for analysis. Um, watching it as a movie is very, you know, as a, you know, just as a movie watching experience is very difficult, um, because you already seen big chunks of this. So your brain is just wired to say, okay, how, how is this different from the first version? Or, um, you know, why did the, you know, why did Joss Whedon make that choice versus Snyder make this choice? And that's a very intellectualized approach to watching a movie, particularly a freaking comic book movie. And, um, and I think Tevi made a very good point, you know, saying how when you watch a movie, you know, you, your first priority should be, am I enjoying watching this? Not taking a critic's step back and saying, um, why am I seeing this this way? And why did they make this choice? And I think a lot of the debate about the Snyder Cut stuff is turned everybody in, essentially into a, a film critic. I should also say, um, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, you know, Tevi positively mentioned the movie PCU from, I think, 1994. And I have not watched it in a long time, but, uh, I was not a huge fan of that movie because it seemed to me that if, at least the way I remember it at the end of it, the PC, you know, uh, forces, turned out to essentially be the good guys and the bad guys once again were sort of the blue blazer college Republicans. And, um, um, and so it was a movie that attacked PC, at least in my recollection that ended up being fairly PC. Um, the, all the PC people, you know, the, the, the angry feminists and the, you know, the, the radicalized people of color, they all turned out to be, well-intentioned people who like to party and all that kind of stuff and just needed to lighten up a little bit. And the pale penis people in, you know, khakis and um, blue blazers were like the real bad guys all along or something like that. And maybe I've got that wrong, but that's my recollection of it. 
Um, uh, that doesn't take away from Tevi's larger point about PC becoming a thing of ridicule by the early, by the mid nineties and how we need to get back to that with the woke stuff. We, we need to replicate that with the woke stuff. Um, I think that's a perfectly valid point. Um, I am just, I mean, as, as I said in our conversation, I'm much more skeptical about that prospect. Um, uh, then I don't, I don't want to say it's Tevi's not skeptical about it. He, he concedes it's going to be hard work. Um, but I think like unifying the right is, um, a, almost a lost cause at this point, uh, for the simple reason that too many people have redefined what it means to be of the right. Um, to the point where it's very difficult to get all the then diagrams to overlap, um, anymore. And, uh, Maybe that will change over time, but I don't think the woke stuff is the issue. Oh, I guess that raises one last thing. So, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said, proposed that, uh, Congress should require certain platforms to have, uh, their own sort of vetting and editorial policies to, uh, monitor you know, extreme speech or hate speech or whatever speech. Um, and a bunch of people have pointed this out already, but it's sort of one of my go-to things and it's just worth, worth emphasizing. Um, this is like classic incumbent corporate behemoth stuff. And, um, and I should notify, you know, fully disclose we are part of Facebook's fact checking program. Um, but, you know, the history of corporations asking government or signaling to government that they'd be okay with regulations uh, is very old. And um, if you've never read any uh, Gabriel Kolko, that's uh, um, K-O-L-K-O, I believe, um, uh, he was a fascinating revisionist historian and he's sort of like um, a peer or sort of a, a student who became a peer of William Appleman Williams, who was like the sort of revisionist historian about foreign policy. Um, Coco did a lot of the heavy lifting on what uh, a lot of people call corporate liberalism. Um, I think he called it, I'm, I can get this right. I think he borrowed from Weber and called it political capitalism. Um, but really what he was describing was corporatism or at least one interpretation of corporatism. Um, I, I think, you know, the, there are people who think corporatism just means rule by corporations. I think that's wrong. Um, although that's close to how Coco meant it. Um, I think that the, uh, if you go back and you look at the original doctrines of corporatism that come out of the Catholic church, um, in the 19th century, it really is more about all the major players, all the major stakeholders, um, calling the shots, sitting around the table. So that would be, um, you know, in 19th century Italy, probably call them the syndicates, but you know, the unions, uh, universities, uh, churches, um, business leaders, guilds, you go down a long list, all of the, all the major players sit around the table and figure out how to run society. Um, often for the benefit of them, right? And it's still an elite institution protection racket. 
Um, and corporatism, that version of corporatism was uh, really the beginning of um, a whole raft of ideological programs that went under the, bar- under the banner of the third way um, or middle way. Um, and yeah, fascism. Um, and anyway, so Kolko talks more about how his argument is, and you can see why it's a little near and dear to my heart, is that uh, the progressive era was um, really defined by corporations uh, influencing government for their benefit. And, and so instead of politics regulating business, it really was business regulating politics. And I think he goes too far with it, and I'll explain that in a second. But um, it is a really his some of his stuff is particularly just his examples and his historical research um, are really 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 useful. Um, Our friend Tim Carney in his book uh, "The Big Ripoff" uh, runs through a lot of this history and is very useful. Um, uh, You might want to go to the original source. I think the the most relevant book is I want to say "The Triumph of Conservatism," um, but we can put his others in the show notes. Um, but you know, Coco is the guy who like, uh, I went to school on for liberal fascism, which was originally basically going to be a book about economics. And, um, Coco pointed out, you know, that U S steel begged for regulation. The phone companies begged for regulation. Um, in, during the new deal, which I don't think comes from Coco, um, uh, he focuses on really the progressive era, but in the new deal, so much of the economic policies of the new deal were designed for the big incumbent players. Clarence Darrow, actually one of his last acts of public service was to do this big report about on the, the benefits or the shortcomings of, uh, of, I think it was just the NRA, um, the national recovery administration, not the national rifle association. um, um, or the National Recovery Act, um, and he found, you know, time and time again that that the laws and regulations were designed to protect the big players against the little guy. And um, um, the and so the reason I bring this up is that what Zuckerberg is proposing is basically an incumbent protection program. This doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea. There are times when we have big companies that we offer certain sort of protections for large players in the economy that can be justified. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not endorsing them. I'm just saying that there are, there are grown up arguments here. And to say that companies shouldn't have robust policies, um, to monitor, you know, abuses on their platforms is it a proposition that needs defending too? But regardless, the point is, is that because Facebook already spends gazillions of dollars on this stuff from like robust AI and they have teams of monitors and they have systems and processes and, you know, all sorts of things, they can afford the regulation that the government, that he wants, that he's proposing the government provide. The next Facebook can't yet you know and the analogy i always use is um with the americans with disabilities act the americans with disabilities act nobly intentioned i think i'm still largely and i think i'm in favor of it i mean that's that's not my point 
um, to say it's, it's bad. I mean, I think there are excesses under it, but that's fine. You know, that's a different argument. My point is under like the Americans with Disabilities Act, if you are a company with 499 employees, you don't have to be fully compliant with it. But the second you have 500 employees, you have to have your entire operation retrofitted with wheelchair access and uh, hearing impaired uh, technology and visually impaired, you know, stuff, all that kind of stuff. If you have to do all that, that means your 500th employee is going to cost you tens of millions of dollars. And if you're Coca-Cola or you're Pepsi, you can afford that. And you pass on the cost of these changes uh, to the consumer to the tune of maybe a penny or two, if that, um, per can of soda. But if you're some, you know, regional upstart soda company that makes a better soda, um, uh, those kinds of regulations are a major barrier to entry. And um, this is one of the reasons why corporatism is so attractive to um, political leaders is because big corporations can be dealt with in essentially peer-to-peer ways. They're legible. Um, they have, um, you know, uh, government relations offices and compliance officers and lawyers, and you can cut deals with them. Uh, that's basically how we got Obamacare is they got all the major players around the table and they basically communicated to everybody that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, as they say in Washington. And that's sort of how corporatism often perpetuates itself. And, uh, and so the fact that Facebook is offering this stuff is very similar to like the head of the U S steel calling for the socialization of the steel industry, because what the U S steel wanted was essentially to have government regulation, lock in their profits and lock out their competitors. And, um, and the same thing happened with like AT&T and all these other companies. And, uh, and you can get, so, and the idea that big corporations are, you know, always going to behave in free market ways because they want to compete with other big corporations just isn't true. They collude with other big corporations. They set up rules where they're basically dividing the pie between them and then they lock out, you know, entrepreneurs and other startups uh, that are, um, that threaten their business model. And, uh, and so anyway, I think that's the way to think about what, what Zuckerberg is talking about there. doesn't mean it's, on its face wrong, but it's, um, but we, we can be clear eyed that, that this is not some grand, this is purely some grand principle. Again, this is about the application of power. Um, so one thing I do want to say though, and I'll just shut up already. Sorry, I just haven't done any eggheadery in a while and it's in my, my head. Um, I like, I find Coco very useful. Um, I just think like almost everybody who is associated with a single grand vision, he overstates the universality of the vision. You know, his, his emphasis is that corporations dictate how government acts rather than government dictating how corporations act. And, um, and my response to that is yes, that is always true except for all the cases where it isn't. Um, in other words, uh, you know, this is one tendency in our society among many other tendencies. Sometimes, uh, you know, 
the government is pushed around by big business and sometimes big business is pushed around by the government. Um, you know, we can see this a little bit in this, this, this Christy Nome thing in, in South Dakota where she's caving to the NCAA on, on the transgender stuff. Uh, you know, sometimes other players dictate to government what they can get away with. And sometimes they fail to get away with it. And the reason why I just think this is important is that if you've got a grand unified field theory about how life works or how politics works or how, you know, government works, it's wrong. It's just wrong because there is no grand unified theory about how everything works. There is so much contingency. There is so much, um, happenstance. Uh, so much is dependent upon the personalities involved, um, and unforeseen and un inexplicable events. I mean, this gets to this thing I talk about on here all the time. No one's running everything. And that doesn't just mean that there are no politicians running everything or no CEOs running everything. No one's running everything. And the more time you spend in Washington, the more you realize this. And this is why conspiracy theories are almost always idiotic, um, at least vast conspiracy theories, because um, politicians, business leaders, they can't get a lot of things done when there's massive public support and unlimited resources and the power of the government behind them. The idea that they can get even more grandiose things done in secret um, is just preposterous. And every constituency out there that you, that if you, if you have under your grand unified field theory about how politics works, um, if, if you think it's the, the globalists who are running everything, or if you think it's, um, you know, the Cokes or, um, I don't know, the teachers unions or whatever, uh, none of these things are true. I mean, yeah, some of these people and institutions and players have a lot of power. And sometimes they get what, and maybe they sometimes get what they want more often than they should. That's definitely true. But if you ever talk to people in these institutions, if you ever talk to any of these players and you say, you know, does it feel like you're running everything? They'll laugh at you. That goes for teachers unions. You know, that goes for the Cokes. I mean, I mean, I've literally asked you know, the Cokes this. It's, 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 it's preposterous. And, um, everything out there is this movable feast of argumentation and trying to seek advantage and trying to deal with the tools, um, and the opportunities that are in front of you, um, where planning is difficult and the future is murky. And, um, sometimes you get a, you have a good couple wins and then you, you know, regress back to the mean, but, um, Human beings just aren't smart enough to anticipate um, how everything is going to work out well in advance. And that means that any sort of grand theory of how the system, or, or as the Germans like to say, the system um, works is uh, ridiculous. Yeah. So sometimes the big business guys, they rack up a win and sometimes they rack up a loss. And that's actually how it's supposed to work in a democracy is it's supposed to be, you know, or forget democracy in a pluralistic free society. Um, you have all sorts of competitors in the marketplace, but also just in the culture who are trying to get people's attention and time away from other people who are trying to get people's attention and time. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. 
Sometimes they succeed even though they had no plan for it. And sometimes they fail even though they had a grand plan for it. But the sort of lazy sort of Marxian approach to things, which says, ah, I see who's in charge. And therefore, everything that happens must be a result of them getting their way is just preposterous. And um, there's some people who really don't like to hear this because they like to think that there is a, a method behind the madness and that there's a, um, a more rational and understandable or evil even uh, system behind the cacophony and chaos that we see on a day-to-day basis. And, um, and there are other people, and I'm one of them, who is really reassured by this. Because it means that there are no lost causes. It means that, that, you know, that there's a role for human agency. It also means that you don't have to turn the people you disagree with into monsters um, or monoliths because they're as prone to screw up or get things wrong as everybody else. Everything's just a big freaking hurly-burly um, argy-bargy of argument and, and um, advantage-seeking. And, and I don't mean that as a cynical thing, because sometimes people are trying to seek advantage for grand and glorious and noble principles. And sometimes they're not. Um, and sometimes, and more, and most of the time, it's a mix of the two. And that's okay, because that's, that's what life is actually like. And it means we are not bound up in some iron cage of uh, inevitability or identity or, um, you know, futility about the kind of society that we want to live in. Um, it's, you know, the future is open and that's true. And that's a scalable point. And it's one of these things, you know, maybe I'm spending too much time talking to my kid about colleges. Um, but that's a point that I think people should take to heart in their own personal lives and not work up weird, unarticulated theories about how the system or the world is against them personally. And it's also a good advice to people who want to um, be in a perpetual state of sort of Tucker Carlson rage about how the other side is doing all of these terrible things and how sort of media bias is this coordinated conspiracy um, and how the deep state or whoever is really running everything to the detriment of you. Um, It's just, that's not reality. It's a very literary thing. And it's another one of these things that I think like some sort of weird um, germ escaped from the way we talk on college campuses. And I would much rather move to a world where we just talked about the things we want and don't want. And here's the deal I'm willing to offer rather than turning everything into some grand, you know, very literary theory about how the world quote unquote really works. And so with that, um, I'm going to go and I'll see you next time. Thanks for indulging me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.